Hey GeoTrekkers, in this exciting episode of the GeoTrek podcast, we'll explore technology related to the connectivity of cellular phones and smartphones with a special focus on natural disasters. It's amazing how much we rely on smartphones for so many aspects of our lives today. In addition to making phone calls and texting, we rely on our phones for navigation, banking, sharing work documents, and entertainment. When Category 5 Hurricane Michael devastated the Florida Panhandle in 2018, I saw firsthand how much we rely on cell technology. I was interacting with a community leader that turned his church into a collection and distribution site for much-needed supplies. He said, Hal, I can't believe I got blindsided. Right now, emergency information is broadcast around the clock on AM radio, and I really I don't have an AM FM radio anymore. I got used to streaming radio through my phone, and since the storm hit, our cell connection went down. In this episode, we'll think about this topic and have the privilege of hearing from technology expert Jonathan Foyer. Jonathan is Vice President of Business Development for Cell Antenna Wireless. In his 18 years with Cell Antenna, he has established himself as a knowledgeable asset in the distributed antenna systems or DAS industry, specializing in the four H's healthcare, hospitality, high-rises, and higher education. Jonathan's goal is to bring communication to the end user and to provide superior customer relations as a trusted consultant in the DAS space. Jonathan is based in Coral Springs, Florida, which is in Broward County in southeastern Florida. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. My very first podcast. I'm very honored. No, it's, you know, you and I have had conversations through the years about technology. You, you really know this stuff. And to give the listeners context, I've been friends with Jonathan's fiance, Karen Bolter, for many years. She's a sea level rise specialist. And we also recorded a podcast with her on this trip. I've been here in South Florida on location. But Jonathan, you and I have always uh, touched back on technology. And I'm always amazed by how much you know about emerging technology and just what's going on with cell phone towers and how people can think about technology in their lives. Yeah, and for me, it's interesting because I love talking about what I do, but I sometimes feel a lot of people don't like hearing what I do. So it's really, it's really, it's an honor to be able to speak about this type of stuff that I am really passionate about and what I, uh, I believe I'm an expert on. So uh, I really am honored to be here. Thank you. No, it's been interesting. Technology is everywhere nowadays. I mean, just to, to get around, we use smartphone maps. You know, uh, we need, we rely on cell service wherever we are. And so whether we're just in our normal lives or we find ourselves in a natural disaster, those are some of the topics we'll touch base on today. And um, let, let's kind of back up. Uh, so you grew up in New Jersey. Could you talk a little bit about your childhood with technology, a daily part of your childhood? Did that run in the family? I mean, when did you really get interested in technology? And maybe you could speak a little bit about what it was like growing up there in Jersey. Sure. Yeah, I was, uh, I was born in New Jersey. I we lived there until I think I was about 14 years old. And I was interested in technology from a very early age. My father had a major influence on my life when it came to computer technology very early on with BBS uh, boards that I can hang out on using old Atari computers, not the video game Atari computers, but the actual Atari computers with disk drives and dial-up modems. And he really got me engaged early on with technology, and it was all computer technology. I was into video games, you know, the early Nintendo systems, Commodore 64, the, the gaming systems that my dad put in front of me just opened up my eyes to technology. It wasn't until probably about around the time the first iPhone came out where I really had a, like a light go off in my head that said, you know, we've been using phones up to this point just to make phone calls. And now I see this as being a major part of our life. And I think it's really great idea to try to get involved in the industry because I could just see this technology not 
not getting stagnant, but but continually improving and get more advanced. And and my my gamble was right. So yeah, it, it's amazing how it, how integrated now. To, I mean, even if you rent a car, it syncs with your smartphone because people need the smartphone to get their contacts to use their apps to navigate. Right? It's everywhere. Well, it's become an expectation, and what's unfortunate is it's become disappointing when it doesn't happen automatically. You know the old saying that Apple uses, it just works? Well, when you get in your car and it doesn't do that, it's now a frustration point. It's not It's not a, a point that's making your life easier. So while the addition of all this technology has, has greatly improved our lives, I think it's also you know hindered our lives a little bit as well because we've become reliant on it. You know, almost almost addicted to that technology. That's true. And, you know, as I travel around, I've seen two cases where sometimes technology doesn't work. Number one, when you go remote enough. Last year, I went into a national forest and I was depending on my smartphone maps to navigate me. And I, I got blindsided. I need paper maps here or screenshots, right? Because I didn't get a cell signal. So that blindsided me. And also when people obviously find themselves in natural disasters, we can also see we don't have cell service sometimes. So those are areas where I guess we need to be prepared that sometimes we we don't get a self-service or, or don't have the technology. Yeah, you don't even think about it because you're going out into the forest as a, a leisurely activity, let's say, and you don't expect it to become almost an emergency situation. I mean, you prepare for a hurricane because they tell you about it ahead of time and you can make the the preparations that you can put into place. You can keep your emergency box that you have, which I used to keep a cell phone booster for applications where we may lose signal or towers may go down. But yeah, you're right. When you're going out into the field just to walk around the forest and then you quickly realize you're in the middle of nowhere and you can't get a signal, unless you prepared ahead of time and download those maps offline, then you're in a tricky situation. So yeah, you're right. You do become really reliant on that. And Jonathan, on this podcast, I want to walk through a few situations like that with you later in the podcast to ask, like, what would you do if you're going into a national forest? What would you do if a hurricane was approaching? Because I think if people hear that from you as an expert, they're going to be like, wow, if that's what he would do, you know, maybe there are applications that, that they can use in their own lives as well. We talked already a little bit about natural disasters, and I want to talk about the story of you coming to Florida. So when you came to Florida, you were greeted, right, by a pretty big natural disaster. Let's talk about that. Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting because growing up in New Jersey, I had already experienced hurricanes. They were quite minor. I mean, I was born in 1978, so and, and I, I have to apologize, and Hal may actually know this because he's a hurricane expert. I can't tell you the name of the hurricane I experienced, but I remember it as a child being incredibly fascinating. Not scary, but like, wow, this is really cool. I think it was Gloria in 1985. Would you right. have been about seven? Yeah, I think you're right. I just remember a couple of our massive, beautiful trees in our backyard going down. And, you know, when you're young, it's fascinating. And when you're old and you're responsible for a lot of things, it's it's frightening. So it's, it's really interesting how your, your thought process changes as you get older. But when we moved down here, my dad retired. He used to work on Wall Street and he retired very young. And we moved down here in 1992. Three days before Hurricane Andrew. And so to uh, to this part of Florida where we're at right now, I mean, we're, we're oh to Parkland. Yes. So that's Broward County. You're really in South Florida, not that far from Fort Lauderdale. Right, and we had built a brand new house, so it was new construction. Everything in the lot was brand new, including we were the the only house on the street, I believe. And we moved down here, and I'm still fairly young, and we came down here in two separate moving trucks. Well, because of the hurricane, only one truck was able to make it to our house, and the other truck had to stay up in Jacksonville or something like that. So you came down in August of 92. You're here just three days, and here comes Hurricane Andrew. Yeah. What, what was going through your head? I mean, you're brand new to Florida, and here's a massive hurricane. Again, I wasn't very concerned because I had no idea really what was going on, but here are my parents who are trying to move into this brand new house. 
Half of our stuff is at the house. So picture you get you get a truck and it's it's a gamble. What's going to be on that truck? Well, no furniture, but there was patio furniture. So we're sitting in our living room on chaise lounges and lounge chairs from the patio. We had a TV and I'm just sitting here watching this massive red blob circle over Florida. And as a as a young kid, not really understanding what's going on, but understanding that there's something serious going on. And originally, I think Andrew's track was bringing it more towards Broward County and um, this area where we're at right now. And then it seems like it shifted a little farther south. Absolutely. And and the interesting thing is that uh, once everything you know passed through and we went out and we started inspecting, you know, because of the new construction, we lost every single tree on our property. We lost our pool screen that was just installed. So it's like it was such a um, a welcome to Florida type experience. Like here, you know. Florida is the, the home of hurricanes. Let's give you one right away, and it's going to be one of the biggest ones ever. Let's just get it out of the system already. It was right. really so, I mean, that's, that is a crazy uh, – you didn't even have a week to prepare, right? It's like brand new, your first week here, and Andrew hit. So, And then you were down here really uh, for high school and beyond. Yeah, we moved down here specifically for high school. We were living in North Brunswick, New Jersey, and my parents wanted me to go to a, a high-rated uh, high school, and Stoneman Douglas was brand new, really one of the best schools in the state. So it just worked out timing wise. My grandmother lives down here. My grandfather had just passed away. So we wanted to be closer to her. My dad was was retiring and he wanted to, you know, sort of relax a little bit. So we relocated and, you know, they sold it to me like I was huge into sports at the time. So they said, you could play soccer 12 months a year. You could play baseball 12 months a year. What do you think? And I said, let's do it. Let's get out of here. It, and, and what's even better was we were just getting the Marlins. So I was really into sports. So he's like, look, I bought you a hat. We went down there and he, he basically sold me. He did a good job. It sounds <laughs> Like overall, it was a good experience. It was very good. The only thing that was challenging was was moving to South Florida and starting school in eighth grade and not ninth grade and trying to get involved with new people. And I, I hate to say it, but one of the things that helped me was I met a lot of really great people through a Jewish youth group and a handful of the people became some of my closest friends were living in Homestead and had to relocate to Coral Springs after the hurricane. And for context, so Homestead was really like ground zero for Hurricane Andrew. So you knew people that really took, I mean, this was a category five hurricane, which yeah. is, uh, there have only been four of them in the history of since 1851. So you knew people really personally impacted by Andrew. Absolutely. One of my best friends, Melissa, who had a home in Homestead, it was, she lost, they lost everything. They relocated here right after that. I met her in ninth grade in Jewish youth group, and we were best friends throughout high school and we still keep in touch here and there. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because, again, you come to Florida expecting the land of Disney World and sunshine and beaches, and then you're greeted with this just uh, catastrophic experience that you know, kind of toughens you up for the future in a way. Like now, while I still get anxiety and I, I get nervous when hurricanes are approaching, I know that you know, as long as you prepare and you have everything in place, and we're fortunate to be giving these alerts ahead of time that, that we, we can be smart about it. And uh, I think that's helped me. So Jonathan, let's talk a little bit about these technologies. You're with Cell Antenna Wireless. You're doing a lot to help people get better connected. But in some ways, too, you've explained some of the technology out there is also designed to restrict access as well to technologies. Could you explain a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, we have two sides of our business. I like to call it the giving of signal and the taking away of signal. I, I prefer to give signal because I want people to communicate and, and you know stay in touch with everybody, but 
we do have situations going on in this country now where there's a lot of contraband in prisons in the United States, and uh, and it's not just drugs; it's cell phone smuggling. Um, in fact, I, I don't remember the date that this article came out, but there was a Wired article where the head warden for the state of Texas was receiving death threats from a pr- inmate in a prison through a cell phone that he smuggled into the prison. And it's a huge, huge deal. And it kind of opened up the door for jamming technology, where we are allowed to, with the federal government, <clears throat> place a system into the jail, which is kind of similar to boosting signal, but it's it's basically cranking up the amplifier's fire so loud that it's creating so much interference and noise that it's actually taking down communication. To try, try to put it into layman's terms, it's the same idea as cranking up your stereo so high that the speakers start getting distorted. It's the same concept. So what we do is we get engaged with the federal government and we put cell phone detection and jamming systems in the building. And how that works is it it not only detects when a phone immediately is used, it reports the serial number, which is called an IMEI number, which every cell phone has. It blacklists it and sends it to the carrier. And then it can actually shut the cell phone off by turning on the jamming system. So it's a multi-part detection and turnoff system where the system itself can pinpoint in the building where that phone is, report the phone to the mobile carrier, whether it's T-Mobile, AT&T, or Verizon, and then ultimately turn it off. Wow, so how, how new is that technology? I mean, is this really just emerging, or has this been around for some time? It's actually been around for quite a while. I think the problem with this technology is there's a Communications Act from the 1930s. It's an FCC Act that says you cannot interfere with public communication. Now, it's very broad. It doesn't discuss federal government. It just doesn't discuss terrorist activity, what, whatever emergency type situation. It's a very broad ruling. So what my uh, ownership group of my company has been doing has been fighting this law for years now. But what it allows you to do is work with the federal government. So, for example, I can't sell a jammer to my next door neighbor because she's complaining that the other neighbor is too loud on their cell phone. Somebody that is just a homeowner is not allowed to interfere with any communication. It's illegal. So it really has to be in federal domain. Um, So also state prisons, and this would not be currently legal to have a jammer in a state prison. But We are are actively working with state prisons to get this to happen. But right now we have these in prisons all over the world, like in New Zealand, Australia, South America, very very high-risk facilities where this type of stuff is going on. Well, I mean, that's fascinating. We don't often think about that, but this, this concept to jam signals, it seems like it's appropriate in some cases and really interesting technology that could obviously make prison safer. And then you mentioned there's a second side to your technology, and that's kind of helping people be better connected. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. I know you've worked especially in large facilities, high-rise buildings, things like that as well. Yeah, my, my specialty specifically is giving signal, and I, I really focus on the healthcare industry because healthcare is critical for communication, especially when you, when, um, uh, when having redundancy inside of a building is incredibly important. So if a doctor needs to communicate and pull up patient records and he's walking to an ER to do a surgery and he can't get a record pulled up in as fast as he needs it, that's, that's a setback for him on a surgery. Being able to communicate where the person who may be sitting in the lobby or waiting room uh, and has to report very important information to their family about something that's going on with the surgery. It's not just from the aspect of the doctor, it's from the aspect of the public as well and having them be able to communicate critical information within a building. Healthcare is considered a emergency building, so it's prioritized in most cases 
cases for the cell phone carriers to give them signal, as well as public safety signal for first responders when they need to go in the ER. Is the issue with large buildings that there's, in some cases, so many layers of concrete and you're so far inside the building that that could actually block the main cell phone signal that we're used to getting? Yeah, that's exactly the problem. You know, when I first started with this company, a lot of the pushback I would get from, from potential clients is that, well, I pay the carrier for this service. Well, I should get it everywhere I go. It doesn't work like that. You know, a radio frequency is a very sensitive item and the littlest amount of material can impede that signal, whether it's regular stucco, wood, concrete, and in the case of healthcare, there's a lot of lead in these walls. I mean, when you go into an ER, there's a lot of imaging going on and that, that room needs to be protected. So the second you walk into that room, there's nothing going on in there in terms of signal passing through because lead completely kills signal. So it's incredibly important when we put a system into these buildings that we put antennas inside these rooms so that signal can penetrate directly in there for them. So are these called boosters? What do you actually call these technologies that help you get better service inside a large facility? So our solutions are called distributed antenna systems. And that's, that's, that's the long version for DAS. That is the industry term for bringing signal from outside the building inside the building. And we do it in a, a variety of ways. The cell phone carriers in certain cases will allow us to just capture signal from their local tower through an antenna right off of the air, it's called an off-air system, where we can just bring signal directly from the tower. And if there's enough capacity on the tower, it will allow the system and the building to work properly. The newer way of doing it, because of all the extra capacity in some of these larger buildings we have, is using an internet connection that plugs into our system that gives you a dedicated almost cell phone tower in your building. And the way that our solutions work is similar to a Wi-Fi system. We have a variety of antennas and access points spread throughout the building. It's all cabled back to a central room where all the booster app, uh, products are located. And that's where the connectivity happens, whether it's the internet connection that's brought in by the carrier or whether it's an antenna that's bringing signal in from the roof. The combination of all of those boosters distributes the signal over the same infrastructure so that when you're walking through a building, AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, and well, Sprint T-Mobile is now merged, all operate on the same system. So that's called a neutral host system because you're operating multiple carriers on the same system. Yeah, that's fascinating. So it seems like technology that you can bring all these carriers into these large buildings. Yeah, I know. So for natural disasters, a lot of times we call it EOC, like Emergency Operations Center. A lot of times a county or a city will set up their EOC at a very large fortified building. So so then we have, again, we're dealing with a large facility with maybe really thick walls, which is good for the safety if the wind's blowing, but maybe not as good for the cell signal. So then you have that issue with, again, a large facility, but then also we're in a natural disaster probably where the power is going to go out. So how can maybe emergency responders or, or people that work with EOCs think about these technologies as well? Well, one thing they can do is be proactive way ahead of time on actually implementing the solution and not being reactive to where there is an emergency actually in progress and now they're trying to install a system in real time. The installation of one of these systems is not overnight. It could take weeks. It's, it's, it's heavy cabling, it's um, a lot of signal testing, and a lot of carrier coordination. They get involved as well. So what a building, an emergency operations center should do is outfit their building with a system in advance, even in the off season, because the system can run 24 hours a day. It doesn't have to be turned on for emergency situations. Chances are, 
if you go into a building today, you're going to see a lower signal than you will outside. So improving that signal just gives you a better quality of life experience, even if there isn't a hurricane. So having the infrastructure in place ahead of time and being able to flip the switch when there is an emergency is, is the way to be proactive and be prepared. Now, our solutions require power in an EOC. I'm assuming there's going to be some sort of backup power in these buildings and our system can fully run off of backup generator power for as long as the generator can operate. Jonathan, let's talk as well for small businesses and just homeowners as well. So in that case, we're dealing with a power outage. Maybe people have a generator, maybe they don't. How can people think about staying connected in a natural disaster as, as a person or small business? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. If we're talking about a homeowner that wants to be prepared, it's a similar concept to a large business, but with very, very, very less equipment. You're talking a couple pieces of cable, a booster, and an antenna that you can mount on the roof of your house, similar to like a direct TV dish or an old TV style antenna, which we call a Yagi antenna. The key for these solutions is the booster needs power. So if there's some way to power the amplifier, whether it's through a generator or a high powered uh, battery backup system you have on hand for a hurricane, then you'll be good to go. If you're without power, we have what's called passive solutions where you can directly connect an antenna to your phone and create an emergency call center where you have to go over, connect your phone to this cable, but you know you have an antenna outside that is getting as line of sight with the cell tower and bringing whatever signal it can get from the air as possible in order for your phone to operate. So this would be like someone installs an antenna in their yard and they actually have a cable that they could plug their phone into. And even without power, if the electricity goes down, that would still work. Correct. Absolutely. Now, the key to these solutions is that there has to be some available signal in the air in order for it to operate. And luckily in Florida, because we're very flat and there's not a lot of interference in terms of buildings and, and mountains, we can get a lot of signal outside. Even if you're a pretty decent distance away from a cell tower, as long as you can get a little usable signal, that antenna is going to give you enough gain so you can make a call. Now, you're not going to download a movie over that, but you're going to be able to make an emergency call, which is what's important. What about Wi-Fi connectivity in vehicles? I've been hearing some stuff lately about there being vehicle-enabled Wi-Fi, things like that. Is that something that's emerging? Are you familiar with that? I'm fairly familiar only because I just got a new car and mine came with a 30-day trial. And it's interesting and it's, it's, I believe it's utilizing, and in my car, I'm not sure who the service is, but it's using a cell phone carrier, let's say like Verizon, and they're giving shared space on their towers for these vehicles to connect to the hotspots. In my testing of it, it was fairly reliable, but I believe that if you're traveling a decent distance, you're gonna be hopping between towers and you may you may find disconnects, but it's not cheap. So if you have a hotspot, if you're paying for cell phone service and you have a hotspot on your phone, I think you have a better option there than using the phone, the Wi-Fi hotspot in your car. Jonathan, something I like about your approach too is you're, you're very practical. You give ideas that people can take action on. Let's talk about these repeaters. I know you have a, a product out there that people can use actually in a disaster. Could you explain about the repeater technology? Yeah, this is, uh, I guess you could summarize this as a, a booster in a box, kind of a, like a suitcase that you would take to the airport. When Hurricane Katrina hit, my, my boss, who's an incredibly innovative gentleman, immediately jumped into action and thought about how we could help FEMA with their emergency response. They were setting up a lot of emergency operation centers, tents where they can hold people and keep them uh, you know, calm and comfortable. And the problem with Louisiana was a lot of the damage that was done was done to ta- cell phone towers too. And not all of them were down, but some were. And what that causes is a lot of inconsistent outdoor coverage problems. So what my boss developed was called a rapid deployment repeat 
repeater system. And what that basically is, is a Pelican case, which is a very secure box that you could probably beat with a hammer and it would never break. It's on wheels, got a handle. You can roll it out into a specific area, whether it's in a tent area, inside of a building, or even an outdoor space. And inside the box is everything you need. It has an antenna, it has a battery system, it has a booster, and it has cabling. And with all those components comprised together, you can open up the box, plug it into power or run it off a battery and provide coverage to a five to 10,000 square foot area, whether it's inside or outside. And what this allows you to do is not rely on power and not rely on any available towers that may be up or down. What this does is it pulls any available signal it can find in the air, whether it's one bar of signal or a little bit more than that, boost it and give you enough signal so that you can make a phone call reliably. This is not going to permit you to download movies or stream 4K video, but it's going to give you a call center where you can communicate reliably. So essentially, this is grabbing signal from the outside with an antenna and then a cable to kind of bring that into a room and, and repeat it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically the concept of what a repeater is. And this is actually how our business got started. Back when distributed antenna systems weren't really a thing, what we did was a lot of coax booster systems that allowed us to both signal directly from the cell tower, bringing it into a building, and then distribute it for the users in the building. The problem with that solution these days is that everybody has a cell phone now, and the cell phone towers are overloaded with users. So take an example for a hotel that's on Sunny Isles Beach that has 50 floors and may have capacity. Let's say they have, they're at 85% capacity and they have 750 users in that building. If we were to bring all those people onto a cell tower, that cell tower would get overloaded and go down. So the carriers now want us to use an internet connection and basically bring a dedicated signal into the building and bypass the towers. So we're no longer putting people on the towers, we're tunneling them through the internet. I see. So as much as people can go through the internet through Wi-Fi, is that right? Yeah, through, okay. Much. Yeah, yeah. So there, the, the other concept of making cell phone calls is actually using the Wi-Fi in your building, utilizing the cell phone carrier's technology called Wi-Fi calling. And iPhones and Android phones have that built in. And if you turn that feature on, as soon as the carrier detects that you have low signal in the building, they switch you to the Wi-Fi network and all your cell phone calls utilize the Wi-Fi network. Now, that, that clearly requires that your Wi-Fi be robust in order for it to work, especially if you're a large business and you have lots of users utilizing the Wi-Fi for phone calls. But it is a great backup to have if your building has no signal and your budget doesn't allow to put a booster system into the building. So cell phone towers can get strained if they're overloaded, right? So in, in a disaster, if let's say there are three cell phone towers in my area and two of them are taken out by strong winds, would that just put more strain on the one that's still standing because it's taking more traffic? Yeah, essentially what you're going to experience is more dropped calls because of the lack of capacity on that tower. Is it true that sometimes texting would work better than calls, like if it's strained like that? Absolutely. Texting uses a lot less bandwidth than a phone call does. So being able to get a, a text message across versus a phone call, you're going to have a lot more reliability in getting a, a short message across that compared to a full phone call. So I'm guessing in a disaster situation, maybe people could text but not talk, or and then certainly like FaceTime, things like that. Might there, There's no way you're going to do that. No, I mean, I mean, I have no experience trying to use FaceTime during a hurricane, especially back you know during the Hurricane Andrew days because there were no smartphones back then and in reality you know communication was probably easier back then just due to the lack of uh, a high-end technology that we had like yeah, more people had land, landlines too yeah, exactly plus landlines are always helpful I mean I remember when Wilma happened I had to go find a payphone to make a call there were no iPhones at that point there were no I didn't work for this company so I had to figure out 
you know, how am I going to get in touch with my parents? None of us had power. And I managed to find a payphone in Coral Springs, amazingly. I this know. is back in 2005. Today, probably wouldn't find one. Yeah. No way, no way. There's no way that thing is there now. <laughs> um, so let's talk too. I mean, we talked about disasters, but also I'm thinking like spring break when there's 300,000 students on the beach or a college football game when uh, Tallahassee or Gainesville have hundreds of thousands of people. How, do, how does the technology work with like this influx of tons of people straining the resources? Yeah, well, I would love to say that we can do something about it. That's when the cell phone carriers step in. So, you know, if you're going to Hard Rock Stadium for a Dolphins game on Sunday and you're tailgating, you may notice these weird looking, almost robotic looking mini towers that are placed throughout the parking lot. They're called cows, sell on wheels. And basically the carriers roll these out to public event spaces where they know capacity is gonna be needed. And they don't just do it for the user, they do it for their towers as well because they know that their towers are gonna be strained if they don't put a small cell type solution in the parking lot to offload those users off their towers. You know, you, you may have noticed driving around South Florida, especially a lot of buildings have panel style uh, antennas hanging off the side of the building. That's because they're not building as many freestanding towers anymore. And they're going to building owners and asking them to use their rooftops. They're paying them for the space and they're putting cell phone towers on the roofs to serve the neighborhood and to the surrounding areas. And this is really prevalent along the beach because they're really trying to get signal on the beach more for users out there. So more and more, we're starting to see antennas on these high rises, right? All over the place. And I'm, I mean, I drive, I drive my fiance crazy because every time we're driving down the road, I'm constantly pointing to her, look at that tower. Look at that's a public safety tower. That's a cell phone tower. And now I got her doing it. <laughs> so yeah, they're everywhere. You can't drive more than a mile without seeing a, a cell phone antenna on a building. And most of those antennas are designed to reach out to your motorists, your pedestrians. Just It's not necessarily for the people in the building. Right. Is that true? Yeah. In fact, the signal doesn't really go straight down. It blankets the neighborhood like a rainbow uh, shape. So the reason why they're utilizing these sites is that they identify them as perfect locations to serve a specific spot that has no signal. The carriers are incredibly concerned about their key performance indicators. And if they don't meet a certain threshold for coverage, then they have to fix that. And that's where this comes into play. So they may notice that a small community in South Florida has got a really low signal for their, their service. Well, they're going to find a building close to that and figure out a way to augment that. Are your services required or, or requested more in places with low cell signal service? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, businesses are starting to realize what the value is of having cellular communication in their building. I think from when I started working with this company, it was a tough sell. You know, when you're paying a carrier or a service, um, you expect to get that service and you expect it to work. So the pushback was, well, I'm paying AT&T $100 a month. Why should I have to pay you to get the signal inside the building? And I get that thinking, especially from the layman's point of view, when you really don't understand the concept of how RF, radio frequency, penetrates within a building. And it's really prohibited by the way buildings are built, especially today in relation to hurricanes. Everything is lead certified, is being built to withstand a hurricane. That material is blocking cell phone signals as well. It's amazing to think that just windows and the way that low E windows are today is having a major impact on our systems. Well, so that brings up a point too. If someone's developing office space, I mean, does it matter your employees sitting by a large window? Is that a, a different connectivity than your employees that are in interior room, like behind walls? Yeah, so you you just opened up a, a conversation about what's called multipathing. And I explained this to a hotel on the beach where if you're up on the 50th floor, you're at the same level as a cell phone tower. So the IT guy will say, look, 
I don't get this. Explain to me why when I go on the 50th floor of my hotel, I have five bars of signal, but I can't make a phone call. What is going on? Well, the problem is your phone can see every single tell tower in the area because you're at the same level as all the towers. And the problem is, and I used a very easy to explain concept to him because I just met him for the first time. And I said, picture it this way. It's like me meeting you for the first time and going to shake your hand and giving you both my hands and you, you don't know which one to grab. Your phone is essentially trying to figure out which tower to connect to and it doesn't know what to connect to. So it sees the signal, but it's not actually connecting to make the call. So your phone is receiving the signal, but you're not establishing what's called the PCI in order to actually make the call. Is it almost like your phone's confused? It's just like, exactly. there are too many options. Exactly. Your phone has been presented too many options. It doesn't know what to pick. So what's the path forward through that? The path forward is putting a DAS in the building and dominating, it's called macro dominance. The macro is the tower. The outside tower is referred to as the macro network. We need to dominate that signal inside the building so that it's stronger in the building than it is in the outside of the building so that your phone sees the DAS and says, oh, I'm jumping on this system. I'm not going to try to go outside the building. So so on the handshake analogy, it's like one hand is much closer than the other. And you're exactly. like, that's the one to shake. Or it's bigger and it just grabs your hand <laughs> and it doesn't let go. So I actually have a meeting next week with a hotel owner in South Florida that we put a system in in 2016. Well, technologies have changed and they now need an upgrade. And what they're experiencing now is their guest rooms on the higher floors are, are not getting coverage like they used to. So we need to increase the power on our equipment on the higher floors so that the signal gets better coverage out to the windows into the guest rooms. Because in the, in, the, in, the, in the case of hospitality, aesthetics are very important. So there's a fine line between putting a system in the building and then seeing antennas everywhere in the guest rooms. You've <laughs> mentioned to me before that hotel owners will turn down an offer of money to put a big antenna on their roof because of aesthetics, right? Uh, absolutely, especially the very, very high-end resorts. They do not want an ugly antenna sticking off the front of their building that may distract from the aesthetics and the overall experience of that boutique hotel or whatever whatever they're trying to go So they'll leave for. money on the table to say, no, I don't want to mess with the aesthetic. They basically are giving their customers a bad user experience. And for me, somebody who knows this type of stuff, I may choose to go to another hotel if that's the case. I mean, a lot of people may say, look, I'm here on vacation. I really don't care. But let's be honest, we're all pretty reliant on our cell phone. And when you have bad signal, it, it doesn't make you happy. Jonathan, you have a lot of experience helping people stay connected. What do you say for that person who says, man, at my house, the cell phone signal stinks. I have to go out in the yard to talk to people or, or where I work. You know, I, I have to stand outside to, to talk to a, a friend on the, on the phone. How can people find solutions to those problems? Yeah, you know, it's funny because even though these solutions are really good for emergency operations and emergency response situations, my day-to-day -day business is just selling to the regular person who is complaining that they have no signal in their building, whether it's a hospital or a hotel or even a small home. We got our business started on homeowner sales and dealing directly with the end user that is experiencing the pain point. We have small booster kits that are pre-configured that require no professional installation that you can purchase right off our website by calling me or even going on our Amazon store. It's a fully kitted solution out of the box. It comes with everything you need and it's very easy to install for somebody that has very little expertise in being a handyman. Just put one, one part in the window, put another part on the other side of the house, you turn it on and you got signal going through your house. So it, for the person that's like, man, my cell keeps dropping or I, I break up a lot at home, this will help them stay better connected. Absolutely. And it's, it's a fairly affordable solution. It's a, a buy it and own it. You don't pay a monthly fee for it, like a service to your carrier. And uh, it just works, as, as, as they say. Um, it's, it's a smaller concept than putting a full-blown distributed antenna system into a building in that it doesn't require the full infrastructure
structure that's wired throughout the whole building, like a, a small home system would be. It's basically a point-to-point -point system that has a receiver in the window and then a booster on the other side of the house. I got you. So typically people would put it on a window or like on a ledge or someplace that has a line of sight to the sky, I guess. What's really easy to do is to take your cell phone and hold it up to a window. And if you see the signal go up a little bit, you know you're getting some signal coming through and then you just put it right there. It requires no technical expertise to set up. Jonathan, I also want to ask you about this concept of providing connectivity to public spaces, public arenas, sporting venues. I know you're into sports. How does some of that technology work? Yeah, it's actually, it, it falls into the same category as, a, as emergency solutions. And what's interesting is, well, I don't want to say it's not the responsibility of the business or the business owner or the property owner or the arena owner themselves, because the carriers are also taking a proactive approach to emergency response situations. And they're actively putting solutions that are funded by the carriers in public spaces on behalf of the building owners, because it may be cost prohibitive for them, but at the same time, they look at it from an aspect of providing public service for the community. So, you know, case in point, if you go into an arena these days, chances are there is a DAS in that building and chances are it was put in by the carrier. And really the concept there is that, you know, not only for emergency situations, but the building owner wants his property and building and the whatever the event is to be publicized. That is great publicity for them. You know, you posting a picture to Facebook and tagging the arena and putting a hashtag draws more visibility to that site. And that's that's an uptick in business for that company. So even if the carrier isn't providing that solution for them, it's, it's a valuable business investment. While it sounds crazy to invest in a quarter of a million dollar solution for an arena that ultimately you would think doesn't really need to focus on giving cell phone signal to the user, you want them to focus on the game, the circus, whatever is in the arena, you're giving them a better user experience as part of that sports event. You know, I guess for me, it's not important, but I know that there are people that love sharing in real time what they're doing on social media and, and posting videos and reels and, and, and maybe going live. This is incredibly important to people and they may choose not to go back to that venue if they have a bad user experience, just like if they had a bad experience with the food at the arena. It's almost more important. So some of these sports venues and arenas, they're using this DAS technology to keep people better connected so they enjoy the experience more, but also so they're maybe sharing the experience on social media. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's a whole other animal putting a DAS in an outdoor scenario. And I, I've had opportunities to go on a lot of tours of different arenas and sporting venues that have systems installed, and they are impressive to say the least. The way that they're designed is to handle capacity, and capacity is the most challenging thing to handle in a DAS. So let's say you're, you're talking about a uh, an arena as big as the Rose Bowl that can handle up to 100,000 people, that system has to design not only to give you the signal, but to be able to actually hold the amount of users in the building on the system itself. And that's why the carriers have to get involved because they have the equipment that can handle the capacity that's required for these venues. In an open air stadium, you also have to make sure that the people that are sitting in their seats, their phones aren't trying to connect to the towers outside of the, out of the stadium. You wanna keep them on the system inside the, inside the stadium itself. Wow, this is such an amazing podcast. I know I'm learning a lot. Again, I'm in with Jonathan Foyer, the VP of Business Development with Cell Antenna Wireless. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time in this podcast. I always ask our guests, is there, are there any last you know, big things out there that you would want people to know? One or two bullet points when you think about your field and your experience and your knowledge of the world, what are one or two things that people should be thinking about? 
Well, I think when it comes to, you know, if we stick with emergency communications, it, it, it's similar to any emergency situation. It's about being proactive and not reactive. If you take care of this and put the measures in place ahead of time, you're not going to run into a situation where you're scrambling to communicate with loved ones or uh, emergency personnel in a situation that's dire. You know, putting the infrastructure into the building ahead of time and making sure that all measures are in place so that when there is an emergency, you're ready to go, it's ready to go. Just like you prepare by filling your bathtub with water, you get water, you do all that kind of stuff, test it, put it in, make sure it's working so that when it's ready to go, you're ready to go. We are happy to support any partners that are interested in working with us on not only our pre-existing technologies, but coming up with new creative ways of achieving support for people that are in emergency situations. Our, uh, the ownership group of my company is incredibly innovative and we're always looking for ways to come up with new products that can, can give value to people's lives. I didn't mention it because it didn't really have much to do with communication, but when COVID hit, my boss jumped into action and developed a, a UVC disinfection chamber. Now, there's plenty of these things on the market, but are there low-cost ones that are available for small businesses that really can't afford the ten dollars to $15,000 disinfection chamber? Probably not. But within a week, we had a product developed and we were scanning every single UPS package that came in our office to make sure that they were free of COVID. So we are always open to innovation. We're always open to working with people that want to come to us with ideas that we can maybe help them achieve. And uh, we're very easy to get a hold of and, and we're very easy to work with as a small business. Yeah, thank you so much, Jonathan. And your location, too. You're so close to the Fort Lauderdale Airport. You're in an area with a lot of disasters, a lot of tourism, high-rise buildings, a lot, you know, you, you mentioned prisons, hospitals. There's a large space and a lot of different crossover in all these different sectors. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mention, you know, our headquarters is based out of Coral Springs, but we do have offices in Oakland, California, in Austin, Texas, and in Atlanta, Georgia. So we're currently expanding our reach. We do support the entire country as well as the entire world. We do a lot of work internationally on the jamming side where the laws are a little little more lenient. But like I mentioned, we're always open for innovation. So, uh, you know, I'm excited to talk to anybody that wants to talk about this technology. Jonathan, how can people find you guys on the web or social media or... Sure. Our website is sellantenna.com. It's C-E-L-L-A-N-T-E-N-N-A.com. That's our, our web presence, our internet presence. And um, I can be reached directly. We can put my info in the show notes. And you know, anytime somebody wants to talk, I'm available. Yeah, fantastic. Jonathan, thank you so much. You gave me a lot to think about here. And a common message when we think about disasters is being proactive, getting out ahead of the storm. And what Jonathan's done here is given us some insight into some products and some concepts that we may not have previously known about. And so they always say you don't know what you don't know. Now, hopefully, we know a little bit more about these technologies through, uh, through Jonathan's podcast here. In this episode of the GeoTrek podcast, Jonathan Foyer shared with us about distributed antenna systems or DAS technology. These technologies are used to improve cellular connectivity inside large buildings like schools, hospitals, and hotels. It has applications for emergency management and disaster response as well. Unfortunately, in such times, sometimes cellular connectivity is really strained. It's hard to get a signal when sometimes communication is the most important of all. Also, this technology has applications in everyday life. If you have problems sometimes connecting to a cell signal, either from your home or business or places that you go, like a weekend lake house, check out Jonathan. You can find his contact information in the show notes. And uh, he's a great resource, obviously incredibly knowledgeable and really taught us a lot about these technologies in this episode of the GeoTrek podcast.
Hey, GeoTrekkers, thanks so much for your faithful support of our movement. Please subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and join us in our Facebook group to continue the conversation. We view each podcast episode as a starting point, not a finish line, to introduce you to a new topic, and our online community is there to give you a place to discuss these topics, interact with others in the community, and sometimes interact directly with the podcast guest. Thanks for being part of the GeoTrek community.